There's a little plug for the uh, Survivor fans here. But uh, the reason I showed that is if you're not familiar with Survivor, it's a, it's a reality show. I think it was probably the, the first reality show, um, at least the biggest uh, reality show. And it, you know, and since then, that seems like that's all you can find on TV. But, you know, they, they took from these previous ten seasons, they took people who were known for their character, either good character, and they put those on the team known as the heroes. And um, for those that had despicable character, for those who were thinking only of themselves and they were plotting traps and just, you know, very deceptive, they put those on the villains team. And, you know, it's true. Our lives certainly speak to what we believe. They speak to our character. They speak volumes about who we really are, just the way we do our life, the choices we make, the decisions we make, the way we treat people. Those things speak volumes loud and clear about our character. And the question is, I wonder which team I would be chosen to play on. You know, would I be on the heroes team based on, and I think that's a question we need to ask. Would we be on a heroes team? Would we be on a villains team? Does our lives, do they, do they reflect the beliefs that we claim to have? I think that, that, that just, in my mind, it brings up a really, really good question. You know, what, what does my life say about me? What is my life communicating? And there's all sorts of questions that we need to ask, especially if we've decided to follow Christ. If Some of you may be at the point where you're really thinking through committing your life to Jesus Christ. You're coming to church because you're really investigating his claims. You're, you're trying to learn about who God is and who Jesus, you know, how Jesus fits into this thing. And, and you're in the process somewhere. And you're, you're, you're just not sure about it. Others of you have already made the decision. You've nailed that down. You've decided, I, I want to give my life to Christ and follow him. I want to do life God's way. And if, if, if you've already made that decision, then I think we have to regularly ask ourselves these kinds of questions. What is my life saying? What am I communicating to my neighbors, to my coworkers, to my family members, to my friends about what I really believe? Because those things spill out. Declaring your faith is not enough without a life that matches our claims. Again, declaring our faith, it's just not enough to say, you know, I have a great faith in God without a life that really matches our claim. And the scripture hammers on this point over and over in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Jesus, you know, he, for those people whose lives did not match their claims, he got in their face because he wasn't okay with that. And so what we're doing in this message series called Undeniable is we're just looking at how do I share this message? And for those of us who've decided to follow Christ, the um, Bible says that we've been called to be witnesses and you know, to share our faith, to share this life-altering, this undeniable message. And there's different ways to do that. You know, there's times when we're to just simply share the message of this is what God says it means to be a Christian. Um, Last week we looked at the importance of sharing our personal experience. Just here's the story of how I came to know Christ. Here's the difference that Christ has made in my life. And that that's an undeniable experience. If you've come to the point where you've received Christ and you've seen a change, man, you have something to share. You have a story to tell people that although may, they may not agree with what the Bible says, they may not agree with what the culture thinks about Jesus, you know, they, they can't. They can't deny that your story is true. If you if you experience a real change in your life, you know that's just undeniable. Today, what we're looking at is the power of our example, just living our lives, and how that itself is proof 
of a change that's gone on inside of us. Last week I talked about how we are not, um, you know, God, he, he wants us to be his witnesses. And the importance of being a witness, understanding that, that, that you have a story, you've got, you, you have some facts to tell, there's some things that you've experienced. It's not your job, though, to do all the convincing. That's God's job. That's the job of an attorney, right? And sometimes we confuse the role of the witness and the attorney, and we start wanting to argue and convince and, and convince people that you've got to believe these things. And what it does is it, it isolates people. It pushes them further away because um, we're actually playing a role that wasn't intended for us to play at times. But there are things God wants us to do. There are times even to share and to encourage people to make a decision. But um, we have to keep this whole area in balance of sharing our faith. So what I've decided to do with this message series is to really look at all the different areas that we are the different ways that we can share our faith and really challenge us together to do that. I want to start by looking at a, uh, a passage in Matthew 5. We've looked at this before, and I want to emphasize a certain part of it. That Matthew 5, 13 through 16, Jesus is talking to a crowd of people up on a mountainside, and says that <clears throat> he says this. He says, You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Another version says it's... it's it's worthless. You might as well throw it in the garbage. Salt without saltiness, it's, it's lost its meaning. It's lost its purpose. Okay? Salt, you know, Scripture says, you know, gives us, or Jesus gives us image of salt, and we think of the different things we use salt for, seasoning, preservation. But what I really, um, you know, one of the main things that salt does is it, it, is it, it enhances the flavor of whatever you whatever you've cooked, right? If you have a, let's say a steak, and um, you know, you've cooked it with some certain seasonings, you add a little bit of salt to it, it just really brings out all the flavor, doesn't it? It, it, it takes the flavor in that substance, that meat or that vegetable or whatever, and it really draws it out. Now, if you put too much salt, it kind of ruins the dish, won't it? But just the right amount of salt, and you can really get flavor, the right kind of flavor from these things that we're eating. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, our lives are to be like salt in that people get a flavor. They get, they get a little taste of who God is as they interact with us. It just it comes out in their interaction with us. They, wow, as I interact with this person who claims to know God, I'm really experiencing who God is through them. It's drawing that God flavors out. And if we lose our saltiness, how will people taste godliness? We have to ask ourselves that question. If God is using us as salt, if we choose to, to lose our saltiness and you know, not interact with people and not live this out, then you know, God can certainly accomplish His purposes without us. But how will they taste godliness without us living our lives in a way that's pleasing to Him? Then He goes and He continues and He says, You're the light of the world, verse 14. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. Again, you're here to be light. We're to bring out God's colors. We're to bring out who God really is in the world. We're to shine light into the world. He, this is really a, you know, a command. Let your light shine. Um, this is not really an optional thing for those of us who have followed Christ. It's saying... You know, if you've lost your salt, 
then you're not good for anything anymore. You've lost your purpose. You've lo- this is why God has placed us here, is to be salt and to be light. So we have to ask ourselves, am I sending the right message to people as I live my life? Are people really getting a taste of God? Are they getting to experience God as they interact with me? Or are they getting um, an inaccurate or a, just a, a dull, you know, saltless um, interaction with me? They're not getting a picture of God then. A very unique example comes to my mind when I think about this passage about salt and light. I was in college, you may have heard this story, but I, I, I was in college working as a framing uh, in construct, or a framer in, in construction. And didn't know much about framing. I could swing a hammer and, you know, I could saw things with a saw. Although that was a little dangerous at the time. But, um, you know, I had my tool belt. I showed up for the first day at work and I was assigned to work under this guy named Billy. And Billy was a rough, scruffy, older man. And he wasn't that thrilled to, to show me the new guy around, but um, he wasn't. In charge, and so he was a supervisor, but he was in charge of me. And so, first he starts just teaching me about terms and stuff, and what's a stud? A stud is the is the main you know the main two by fours that you use to construct a, a house. And so I'm he asked me first, you know, go get some studs, and I'm looking at him like I don't know what you're talking about, you know. And he's like that pile of wood over there. Start bringing them individually over. So I get a couple of them. He says, you can, you can carry more than that. You know, okay, so I go get like four. And he's like, get about ten. You know, get twelve. I'm like, man, this guy's really being rough on me. And uh, so the week goes on, and it's just this constant teaching thing. And he's getting worn down and worn down and worn down, and he's really losing his temper with me. Over and over and over, he, was just, he would just get, he'd get ticked, and he'd walk away. He wouldn't answer my questions. And I'm just like, this is great. I've got to work with this guy, and I need the money. I, I, you know, what am I going to do? Well, they get to the point where I started learning the terms. They gave me a nail gun. They gave me a saw. Again, kind of dangerous, but, you know, here I am, equipped to build some walls on my own. So I started building some walls. You know, he showed me how to read the, read the blueprints that they would scratch out on the floor, on the foundation. And I started building some walls, and we go and we raise um, one of the walls that I'd built. And it takes a bunch of guys to raise a wall. And so we called the guys down from other jobs that were working in houses above us. We'd raise this wall, and then he's inspecting the wall, and he realizes that I built a, a door where there was supposed to be a window. And uh, he looks at the wall, and he's looking at the floor, what he'd written, and I, I read it wrong. I made a mistake. He says, come here. And he cusses me out. And I'm just like, you know, what am I going to do? I'm this, you know, little guy, and he's just this huge, burly guy that, and knows what he's doing. And I, I'm feeling like an idiot. He's yelling at me. All the guys on the side are looking at me. And I feel, you know, I'm feeling this big. So I leave work that day ready to just, you know, take off my tool belt forever and go in another career direction. And uh, my dad, you know, he could see I was getting down. And, and I just was like, Dad, I want to quit. I hate this job. It's, you know, he's like, well, it hasn't been very long, Josh. You can hang in there. And I, there's this guy. He just, he's, this, he's a jerk. He just treats me this way. And he, today he cussed me out. He's always making these comments, and I just don't want to do this anymore. And he says, well, why don't you just start praying for the guy? Okay, I'll I'll start praying for the guy. Well, one of the days later, I show up to work, and I'm wearing a hat. It's a promise keeper's hat, and I went to a 
gathering of Christian men, maybe a year or two before that, and so I'm wearing this promise keeper's hat. It's not a real Christian hat, even though it's a Christian organization. It didn't have big crosses on the side or anything, but it said the word promise keepers on it. I show up to work, and he says, you know, he looks at me, and he says, hey, you're, you're a promise keeper. I'm a promise keeper. <laughs> and, I, and promise keepers, this is a big Christian organization. They gather men to pray and worship and do other stuff. And he says, I'm a promise keeper. Yeah, I go to the, you know, this church down the road. Now, I grew, didn't grow up here. I grew up on the Central Coast. And I said, yeah, I go to the church on the hill. And, and it's the biggest church in our community. And I was like, oh, okay. okay. And he said, yeah, I'm John the Baptist in the, in the Easter play. You know, I play John the Baptist every year. And my grandson, he's baby Jesus. And, and I'm like, okay. You know, and, and I had a real hard time with that. Because you know, here's this guy who just let me have it every day. And I'm thinking, man, what a, what a horrible reflection of, of, of Christ. If Christ has really come in, and I really didn't believe him, you know. And I think, you know, his life was just not matching his message. God wants us to be salt and light. He wants us to make a difference. It reflects the one that we follow. Later on in this passage or in this, in this sermon, in chapter 6, verse 1, Jesus says this. He says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men. I'm sorry, yeah, before your act. Be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by men. So before he says, live your life in the public eye. He says, be, be salt and light, interact with people, be in the public. But then he says, be careful not to do your acts of righteousness before men, to be seen by them. And he, so he goes on to say that there are certain things that we should keep hidden, we should keep to ourselves. And in this chapter 6, he talks about giving, he talks about prayer, and then he talks about fasting. All are acts of worship. And he says, in each case, the same thing. He says, do it. You need to pray. You need to give. You need to fast. Do it. But don't let anybody know that you're doing it. Keep that to yourself. Keep that between you and God. So there's this strange tension. I need to live my life in a, in a powerful, visible way, reflecting God. But at the same time, there's certain things I need to keep to myself. The truth is we will always have an audience. People will always be watching your life. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to keep in mind that you're sending a message every single day. And the point that Jesus is making here is not to, that all of our religious activities need to be seen by people, but it's that God wants us to show His grace, His mercy, His love. When it comes to certain religious activities, there's things that God reserves for Himself. But there's these outward expressions of God that we, need to be, that we need to be expressing each and every day. We're called to reflect Christ individually. You can follow along if you'd like on the listening guide, but we are all called to reflect Christ individually. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, Paul makes this crazy statement that not, not many people can make. And I was talking to my one of my uh, a group of small group or a small group of guys that I meet with about this verse and just how it man this just challenges me. He says, "Follow my example, as I follow the example of Christ." That's a powerful statement that Paul could say. Hey, just follow my life, follow my example, the, the way that I live. Follow me, as I follow the example of Christ. How many of us could make that statement? That is that is a really challenging thing to know that his life was really an accurate representation. The word example. It means imitate. Mimitas is the Greek word, and it just means to imitate, to be an accurate reflection of something or someone. 
And so Paul was a man, he was a church starter, starting churches throughout the Mediterranean. And he believed he was setting a good example for people to follow. That was a bold statement. You know, we, we all of us have tremendous access in our country, in our, you know, in our city, you know, in the U.S., and in many countries. We have tremendous access to the Bible. We can just get the Bible at any at a Walmart, at a Target, at Christian bookstores, we can get it online. You know, we can learn about God. We can learn how to follow Christ through the Bible. But Paul was living in a time where the Bible was not very accessible to, to us, let's say, if we were living back then. The Bible, it was still being written. The New Testament wasn't completed. It was still being written. And so he was, he was having to say, look, I'm going to set a good example for what Christ has done and how he wants us to live. Watch my life. Follow my life. This is, you know, in those days, the Bible moved life to life. That's how the message moved, from life to life to life. And the key is that it wasn't watered down and diminished over time. Now, for us, since we have the Bible, I think sometimes we think, well, I don't have to really take this out. I don't have to be public about the way I live or public about my faith because people can, if they want, get a hold of the Bible. But the truth is God still wants to to share his message from life to life. It is so powerful as people see the example of Christ in us and they see an unmistakable, undeniable difference in our lives. That that just motivates people to find out why is that. What have they discovered that I'm missing? This for me was one of the main things that drew me into relationship with God. You know, I'd grown up in the church, but I hadn't seen very many sincere examples. And when I arrived in college... Midway through my freshman year, I met enough people that I was convinced, wow, this is for real. Their lives are very, very different than mine, and I I want what they have. I'm empty inside. There's some things I'm longing for that I have not found, and they have discovered, and I want to know what that is. And through just watching the example of a few people, it powerfully changed me. It it created this desire for more. That's also what salt does, is it it, has the ability to create cravings in us i wanted more but we're, we're called to reflect christ individually and then also corporately corporately as a body as a group as a church specifically first thessalonians 1 8 I, I put this in in the outline in the message because it just really captures the meaning of what he's trying to communicate here he's talking about a church and how they reflect christ and he says this he says about this church, he says, The word has gotten around. Your lives are echoing the Master's word, not only in the provinces, but all over the place. The news of your faith in God is out. We don't even have to say anything anymore. You are, you're the message. I, I just think that's an amazing, amazing verse. To be able to say of a church, you guys, you guys are just spreading this message, not because of what you're saying, but because of the way you're living, because of the faith that you have and how real it is. You're the message. Just collectively, you're making a huge difference in, in our world. This church's reputation was just powerfully spreading. The church in this region was under severe persecution. God was testing and refining their faith through severe pressure, and that's what God does in our lives. And as, as a church, there's just seasons of pressure that we experience. Sometimes it's individually, sometimes it's corporately. People are suffering over here and struggling over here and over here and over here. And as we suffer our, and as, as we hold on to our faith and try to trust God through the hard stuff, man, that sends a powerful message to people as they see groups of people learning to trust God in, 
in difficult times. That's just, that's powerful. <clears throat> so if our interaction with each other, as we relate as a church, if, you know, if it doesn't reflect Christ, then we need to re-examine why we're meeting. We need to re-examine why we gather together. If, if the messages we're sending corporately together as a church is, is an inaccurate reflection of Christ, then we're doing something wrong, and we need to take a look at it again. This is, a, this is a strong charge towards the church and towards our church. Look at this uh, quote from St. Francis of Assisi. He says, Preach the gospel always. If necessary, use words. You know, what, a, what a great statement. You know, we, we already are... You know, we have this life example that can come out individually and corporately. So we, we want to examine all that we do in our interaction with people. If what we do is, is, is not making sense or is sending the wrong message, we need to stop. We do a sports camp in the summer. We need to keep in mind as we're doing a sports camp, we represent Christ. That, that, you know, that involves so many people from our church. And we're getting to interact with many people who have no church background. And we represent, we represent Christ as we're instructing kids, as we're working with parents, as we're doing security, as we're making food, as we're doing all that goes on in that week, we represent someone much greater than us. You know, it's not just our church whose reputation is at stake. It's, it's, it's Christ. We did some stuff during Christmas season to just promote um, a city event and to serve our city just with some of their goals that they had. Again, we represent Christ in the way that we do that. And if, as we're relating to people in the as we're serving, if we just are careless with our, with our interaction, man, we send a real powerful message to people who may never step foot in a church or may never be willing to listen about what God has to say about their life because of their interaction with us. We've got to keep in mind the, the messages we're sending. So we want to examine two, two areas broadly, attitudes and, and our actions. We should all regularly examine these areas. First is our attitudes, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. It says, Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. It starts with, Do everything without complaining. You, you can set yourselves apart if you'll do everything differently. You shine like stars in the universe. Paul understood that he and his church planting team, they could plant the message in a city, but they could never carry that message into the heart of the society because they were outsiders. They were coming into a city as outsiders. So their hope was to reach a few people who would take the message back into the heart of the city to transform people and lives and communities. And that's what happened. So his instruction was to live blamelessly, to live above reproach, and to hold out the word of life. That was the most important thing, to hold out, to offer this word of life, the message of Jesus Christ to other people. The success of Paul and church planters, it rode on the Christians responding to you know, this message, living it out, taking, taking it seriously, living like stars. That's a real challenge, to live like a star, someone who draws attention to God and you know, just, again, being the light, him being the light, just recognizing the responsibility we have, it's, it's, a, it's a challenging thing. And then Paul has to go and he, he has to put pressure on this difficult area that we all struggle with. He says, do everything without complaining and arguing. 
You almost wish he didn't put that in there, don't you? You almost want to complain about that, don't you? And argue with someone about, why did he do that? Now, this needs to be our theme verse as we interact as a church with, with the community or as we serve the community. This needs to be our theme. Do everything without complaining or arguing because that just sends a powerful message. He warns against complaining. You've got to pay attention, pay careful attention to complaining and arguing. The first thing complaining is, is you know, how difficult is it to, to, to live without complaints? Some people are, you know, half glass full people. It might be slightly easier to do this, but it's still pretty difficult to live without complaining. Uh, but nothing can ruin a day faster than complaints. You know, your day is going great. Everybody's getting along, and then somebody starts complaining, and you just, you just, oh, you're like, you're throwing away this great day because of that? You know, complaining just has a way of just souring anything. There was a lady at a, at a park that my wife and I met recently that um, she had five kids. Here we are, we have three kids, and she had five kids. She's by herself, and she's walking down this little hill with two car carriers. Now, this lady's like this tall. She's got two car carriers. She's got some little kids running ahead of her, and these babies that weren't like newborn babies, but they were probably like 16, 18 months in car carriers. That's pretty heavy. I mean, you know, and she's walking down this hill, and she's just, She's got this big smile on her face, and I'm just looking at her, and Erica, it's like, what is she so happy about? That just, you know, and she comes, and she sits next to us, and her kids are playing at the park next to us, and we start talking. Turns out she, she's a Christian, and um, man, it just, it was just so obvious. Before she even said it, it was so clear in talking to her, just that you could see this, this difference in her face, and how positive her her outlook was on her situation and on just as she was sharing. I mean, it's just like, wow, this lady really has a good perspective on life. So it was no shocker when she said, you know, I've, you know I'm a Christian as well. And you know, that, that really is the way it should be, that there should be this real sincere expression of our faith outwardly. Again, arguing. We have to watch arguing. This is, um, you know, some of us are more combative than others, but we just have to really rein this area in. If, if you tend to be a person who's more combative, always wants to drive home a point, always wants to debate a point, it's good to take a step back and just to, just to reconsider that because as a follower of Christ, that sends a real, real um, different message. That's not giving a real accurate representation of who Christ is. And so I think um, this verse, Philippians two fourteen through 16, I think I'm going to bring this up over time as we interact because I really think this is something we need to keep in our mind as we relate to people in our community. So there's that whole area of attitudes, and then if you flip over, it's actions. Pay careful attention to your actions. James 2, 14 through 19 says this. It says, What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save him? He's talking about an empty confession. That's just an empty confession to say, I have faith, but I have nothing. I have no deeds that follow my faith. That's an empty confession. Verse 15, suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. That's an example of false compassion. 
It's pretending to be concerned about people. Man, that's sorry you're in that bad situation. Well, have a good one. You know, and you know, someone needs help and you just you have the means to help, but you don't help. You know, James is challenging. He said faith needs to accompany action. Otherwise, it's dead. Then verse 18, 19, but someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. This person errs more on the deeds. They're always doing, doing, doing. And then he balances it again. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You believe that there is one God good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. So here James is talking about a shallow conviction. Just a, it's, it's something verbal, but it, it's, not very, it's not a life commitment. It's just a shallow statement, shallow conviction. This is, again, our challenge to keep things in balance. Our faith needs to be matched by like deeds. Our faith must lead us to action. It must challenge us to do life differently every day. A living faith moves us to meet needs in the lives of people around us. It it moves us to see past our house, to see past the window of our house and to see our neighbors and our friends and our family, extended family, and our community. It moves us to do something, to rise up and do something about it when things need to be done. This is why our church rallies around um, one of our core values. The first heart attitude says, put the goals and interests of others above my own. It's based on this verse, Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. You know, it's natural for us to look at our own interests, but he's saying we need to look beyond our interests to the interests of other people. That is a living faith. That is living proof that Christ has really made a difference. And this living faith is what God requires of us. It's why we exist. It's why we served in the, in the Christmas season. It's why we you know, do our sports camp. It's why we do things outside of our own church to benefit others who are not a part of our church. It's because we have a concern for others and we want to continue that. Um, right now, with the horrible situation that's unfolding in Haiti, with the, the earthquake that struck, you know, 7.0 earthquake struck, and um, I, I don't know what the official count on bodies at this point is, but, you know, officially tens of thousands, but some are estimating this could be, you know, 200,000 people um, died from this earthquake. And what can be done? I think some of you might be asking that question. I know I have been asking, what, what is it, God, what is it you want us to do? Um, the church has a responsibility when, not just our church, but the church, those who follow Christ, has a responsibility to take care of those who are in situations like this. This is not an optional. There's commands. The scripture talks about helping the helpless. And so, um, what are we doing? One of the things we do, um, it's it's an ongoing effort, is we cooperate with people who, who, who respond to crisis. So, part of our alliance is with the Baptist um, convention. And as a Baptist church, um, part of what... It, you know, when you give, your your money is not just all going towards our ministry operations here, but 10% of, of what is received goes out to the mission field to support God's work around the world. And part of that is disaster relief. The Baptist Convention actually has a ba- 
disaster relief area that responds to crisis like this. And so some of the money that, or a portion of what we receive on Sundays goes to disaster relief. Um, so we already are participating in, in helping. Um, but beyond that, you might feel like, I need to do more. I want to do more. And even in the Bible, you know, people that followed God, there was this commitment to their local church, but there was also God was constantly showing them the needs around them. And in the Old Testament, God's people would make room in their budgets beyond their support of their local church. They would make room in their budget for crisis, for people who were helpless. There was a, an offering taken every third year for the helpless. And so, you know, I would encourage you to just examine, how can I help out beyond what I give already? I need to help out if there's a way I can. Um, there's a, a bunch of reputable Christian organizations that have already responded to this crisis, and they're already helping. And I wanted to uh, highlight one. This is Samaritan's Purse. And so I wanted to run a real, you know, one-minute-long Clip from All of the us have been just leader. stunned and shocked at the destruction in Haiti. But right now we need to respond. And Samaritan's Purse already has people on the ground. We're focusing on clean water. We can do 12 to 15,000 gallons of fresh water a day. Uh, we are also looking at temporary shelter. This is extremely important. Uh, everybody's home just about got flattened. And they need a place to live. We're going to be initially building 6,000 shelters. And then we'll be adding more uh, each and every week. But we need your help. We need your prayers. We've got hygiene kits we're taking. We have medical equipment and also medical supplies. We're working with local hospitals. These are hospitals that Samaritan's Purse has been working with for over 30 years. Uh, we're working with various mission organizations that we have had a relationship for 30 years. These are people we know. This is a country we know. We're there. We're responding. And we do need your prayers and we do need your financial support. Please help us today. If, if you've already, if you're already, um, planning to give to an organization and you're looking, you know, if you're already committed, then great. Give to where you've already given. Um, if you're looking for one, I, I'd recommend Samaritan's Purse. Um, they have relationships with people in Haiti already. They've been there for, he said, 30 plus years doing ministry there. Um, they actually work out of, Samaritan's Purse works out of a Baptist hospital there in Haiti. And so uh, Baptists as, as well have been active in missions there in Haiti. Um, but I looked at some of the different Christian ministries that are responding, and I just thought this was one that I'd really like to get behind for my family um, as, they're, as they're supporting this effort. What they're focused on is emergency shelters. They're putting up emergency shelters for families, um, clean water, food, and medicine. And they're focused on the survivors. Um, this organization specifically is trying to keep those who are living alive and um, beyond that, they're also trying to meet spiritual needs, which is another reason why I'd recommend Samaritan's Purses, because they're also looking at the opportunity to share about Christ with these people that they're ministering to. We've already posted a link on our website to Samaritan's Purse. So if you go to our homepage, um, you can find a link to Samaritan's Purse, and you could give directly to them. We don't want to receive money for that. We want to just send you to them and eliminate us as the middlemen, and just if you'd like to support what they're doing, um, but a good portion of Jesus' public ministry was to the poor. And the poor in our cities in America are wealthy compared to the poor around the world. I was looking at this last night and just stunned. The poor in, in America, you know, 70% of the poor own homes. That's just, 
you know, and it's like, I think this thing I was reading, it was only 2% of people that are poor are truly poor in America. Like, they would be considered poor. And we just live in such a wealthy place. You know, we, God has really, you know, blessed us as a country. And so we have an obligation to, to act in these kinds of situations. Um, but Haiti is, is the poorest country in the Americas. It's the poorest country in North America, South America, and Central America. The poorest. And so, and again, the scripture does say that we have an obligation to the poor. So I'd encourage you to, to do what you can do to not, just, to not just say, you know, ah, like the James passage talks about. You know, sorry to hear about that. And then just to go on with our lives. There, there's always something we can do in these situations. Just to wrap things up, 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. Talks about spiritual gifts and and it elevates this gift of love. It says, "If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, then I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, and I can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains, like I can do mighty things, basically. If I if I've got the faith to attempt mighty things for God, but." Have not love, then I am nothing. Again, it's worthless. If I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, then I gain nothing. Love is supreme. Love is when we act in the best interest of another person because it's right. Not because they asked for it, deserved it, or you know, they you know, they did something for it. It's 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 because it's right, it's what's needed. It's the type of love that God showed by sending his son Jesus to suffer and to die on our behalf. That's the kind of love that God wants us to express every day towards our neighbors, towards our family members, towards crisis moments like this. And so here's two questions to just consider as we leave, as we continue in worship. Am I acting in loving ways towards my family, my friends, my coworkers, my neighbors? And then overall, what message am I sending through my actions and attitudes on a daily basis? All of us already are a good witness or a bad witness. You're a witness. As a follower of Christ, you're already a witness. You're either a good one or you're a bad one. So um, I hope this is a challenge to you as it has been to me just to examine my life, to scrutinize the way I do my life, and to make improvements because all of us um, can. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as the band comes up to lead us and continue in a few more songs.